0: Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and moved closer toward the gospel by this week's message. I've had this overwhelming feeling at times sitting where you guys are sitting in the pews for last several Sundays of how deeply each of you is loved by God. Like literally this sense in my heart that is so strong that like I have to get up and walk around because I'm so excited about the love of God that is just pouring out. And I think it can be really scary to open yourself up to love like that. Because if you do, maybe you're afraid it'll change everything. And you're right. When we open ourselves up to the love of God, we open ourselves up to the great reversal of everything changing, of all of our priorities being totally different from what they were before. And as I was thinking about this passage, this very familiar parable that I think some of us are sort of like, oh, we have to go through that parable again. I was thinking about how much of my life I have spent in the lawyer's position in this parable, just wanting to kind of have things be the same, to think about God's kingdom in exactly the same way that I have always thought about it and just keep going with that. But what I want to invite all of us to this morning is to open ourselves up to what Jesus does in this passage, which is just completely blowing up any conception we have about what the kingdom of God is like. Specifically, I wanna look at how our concept of God's love and our love for other people get completely reversed when we live in God's kingdom. What happens is our love for ourselves that bends inward starts to flow outward. Into love for other people. And what happens is the people that were our enemies before become our neighbors. So, you guys ready to look at this text with me? (laughs) Okay, why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles? Uh, The passage that we're looking at, Cindy so beautifully read for us, is Luke 10. Starting in verse 25. Okay, so let's start with that first reversal that I was talking about. What can turn our love for ourselves into love for other people? Let's take a look at how Luke sets the scene here with the lawyer. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Right out of the gate, we notice that the lawyer is interested in one thing, and that's himself. <laughs> what shall I do to inherit the kingdom of God? or what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He is interested in his own future good, that he thinks that he can earn by something that he does. Now, Luke really assists. Luke is like the master of asides if you read his gospel. And he gives us a really great aside right here in exposing the source of the lawyer's questioning. He says, The lawyer asked Jesus this in order to put him to the test, which begs the question what exactly is being tested here? Klein Snodgrass, and I'll just give you a second to relish in that name, Klein Snodgrass, he wrote um, a really wonderful, huge compendium about the parables and interpreting them called Stories with Intent. And in that uh, book, he says that the lawyer is questioning Jesus' theology, specifically his theology around interpreting the law. So Levitical law and an orthodox interpretation of a Levitical law at that time mandated Separation from things that are unclean. And if you separated yourself from things and people that were unclean, you could earn God's favor. So give the sick some space, give sinners some space, and then you will be worthy of being with God. He can be near you, you'll be holy like Him because you've been separated. That's not at all what Jesus was doing, right? In his ministry, he went to the sick, he went to sinners, he went to their houses, he ate with them, he touched them, he got very close to them. And so we can sense in the lawyer's question here an intention of dismissing Jesus' theology, testing and dismissing Jesus' theology so that he can reject any claim that it has on him. Like he can say to Jesus, your reading of the law is not really orthodox or correct, and so therefore I don't have to do what you say and I don't have to behave the way that you behave. Of course, Jesus does not take the bait with this question, does he? He never does. He, he goes ahead and he bends that questioning back on the lawyer. He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? You know, this is a matter of interpretation. Since you're such an expert, right, a lawyer, an expert in the law, why don't you tell me what you think it says? And what kind of answer does the lawyer give? It reads to me like the perfect standardized test response, right? It's just a clean restatement of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There's no opinion in it. He's just saying, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Pay very close attention to Jesus' response to the lawyer. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That word correctly in the Greek is orthos, which will probably sound really familiar to us. It's the same word that turned later into orthodoxy. Orthos, orthos, correct, doxy, Doxa, opinion. So this Lord has given the most correct answer, right? Ding, ding, ding. Like he has answered his own test that he put before Jesus in the most right possible way that he could have. And so we get this sense that he understands the letter of the law, he comprehends with the letter of the lies, but Jesus' response leaves us thinking that maybe Jesus doesn't think he understands the spirit of the law. He doesn't understand the law in his heart. I've been haunted by this word orthos. When I was reading for this sermon, I couldn't help comparing this passage to another one from the Gospels about what it means to understand love for other people and what it looks like to live it out. I think if there's any opposite in scripture of the lawyer in this passage, it's got to be Mary, um, Martha's sister, who we're going to learn about a little bit more next week. You'll remember Mary. She was the one who the disciples and Jesus were having a dinner party, and she crashes the dinner party, and she comes in, she pours all this fragrant oil on Jesus' head, and then the disciples are all in a tizzy because, and they point out very correctly, very piously, she should have used that money to help the poor and not just waste it all on Jesus, right? And then what's Jesus' response to Mary? He rebukes the disciples' uptight morality. Leave her alone, he says. What she's done to me is beautiful. Beautiful. Not orthos, right? See the difference between those two words? Beautiful. Beautiful here is kalos in the Greek. It means right, fitting, and lovely. In other contexts in the Gospels, it's used to describe the beautiful, lovely, ripe fruit that grows out of a person's soul when they are rooted in the abundant life of God. So note the contrast in these two figures. We've got the lawyer who's armed with his impeccable knowledge of the law that utterly fails to touch his heart or change anything in his behavior. In fact, he's using the law to draw boundaries about who he has to love. Right? So he's using it for its opposite intent. Keeps that law just coldly locked away in his brain. And then Mary, who foolishly squanders everything that she has to pour herself out in love for Jesus and exposes herself to ridicule in the process. And she's the one that Jesus says is living in the kingdom of God and loving the way that we're supposed to love. So if we turn back to the parable, which is Jesus' actual answer to the lawyer's question, the here we find reminds us of Mary. What's the Samaritan's love look like, right? There is the expense of this care. It's lavish, right? The pouring out of oil and wine the blank check that the the Samaritan writes for this man without references, without asking whether he's worthy. And then the Samaritan abandoning his own sense of safety and comfort and letting the wounded man ride on on his donkey. And then there's a really, really striking resemblance between the Samaritan and Mary, which is the source of this love. Where does love like this, that looks so different from worldly love, where does it come from? Now, if you'll remember the passage with Mary anointing Jesus, Jesus says something really, really strange that I have never understood about why, how he interprets Mary anointing him. He says, She's preparing me for burial. In some mind-blowing way, Mary was drawn to Christ to minister to him in expectation of his suffering. Her love was drawn from her out of this deep well of a desire to be near Christ, to worship him, and to care for him in his passion. The word we use for this is compassion. Compassion. Passion's an old word that I think we, we think of passion like romance, right? Passion is an old word that means suffering. And compassion comes from compati, which is Latin. It means to suffer with. Luke uses this same word in a lot of different places in his gospel, but mostly he uses it about Jesus to describe Jesus' gut-wrenching Feeling of pity and solidarity for those who were suffering. Compassion is what filled Jesus at Nain toward the widow who lost her only son. Compassion is what filled the prodigal when what filled the, the father when he saw the prodigal returning to him, ragged, head hung in shame. That was compassion. Compassion is what caused Jesus to stop everything. Come close to the sick and possessed and touch them. Their pain called out to him. And when he touched them, his power and his love went out of him to bind up the brokenhearted and befriend the lonely. So in this passage, verse 33, Luke tells us it is that same word, that same compassion that fills the Samaritan and stops him in his tracks and causes him to go to the wounded traveler. I just challenge you to look into your own heart and look at your love and what you use it for and who you use it for? Is it the self-serving kind of love that we see in the lawyer who knows all the rules and all the right answers? Is it a love that spirals inward and sends all of its power to preserve you? And what would happen if we opened ourselves up to compassion? I feel like that is my deepest prayer for all of you, that you would allow compassion to come into your heart and send that love that's spiraling inward, spiraling outward into the world, into the wounded world. Okay, the wounded world. That brings up the lawyer's second question. If our love is not meant for us but for others... Who exactly do we mean by that? In other word, in other words, who's our who's our neighbor? Luke comes to the rescue again with another very helpful aside in verse twenty nine. Um, he says that the lawyer is asking this question about who's my neighbor in order to justify himself. Now, anytime we read about somebody trying to justify themselves, a little alarm bell should be going off in our brains because a lot of times in the Gospels when we see people who are justifying themselves, it is thought of by Jesus as an abomination. In fact, sometimes he calls it an abomination because outward righteousness is sometimes the best cloak for inward pride and contempt. So when we look at the lawyer and we hear his question and our understanding that he's trying to justify himself, we see that what he's doing is he's pitting his own, you know, orthodoxy against Jesus. And he's saying, well, well surely I don't have to love the people that you, Jesus, loved. That wouldn't, I wouldn't be following my interpretation of the law if that was the case. And in this time, that interpretation of the people who were unclean, that should be avoided, I said before, the sick and the sinners, but it also included, in some narrow interpretations, Samaritans. Now, I don't have, to get, I, I don't have time to get into all of the reasons why, um, but you all probably know that Samaritans and Jews really, 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 really didn't like each other at all. And if you go and read some of the contemporary accounts, some of the rabbinic writings from Jesus's times, some of the insults towards Samaritans in there are absolutely bonkers. I mean, it's wild if you read them. Just a couple of examples. One writing about Samaritan women claims that they are unclean from birth because they menstruate from birth. So they're always menstruating, so they're always unclean. I, seriously, you can look this up. Another one said that Samaritans were so unclean that even what their shadow touched should be avoided. Unless you think that this was a one sided hatred from Jews towards Samaritans, oh, it was not it was fully reciprocal, and the Samaritans didn 't really like being called dirty and heretical. Um, they disagreed with the Jews about where the temple should be, and that was like one of the main contentions as they had this disagreement about theology. Where should the temples be? The Samaritans didn't think it should be in Jerusalem. And so some Samaritans thought that they'd get some payback on the Jews. So they went in 9 AD to the temple in Jerusalem, and they scattered human remains there to desecrate it. So (laughs) these are people who don't like each other. Suffice it to say, they were locked in a battle of escalating pranks and insults. And I could go on and on with examples, but... If you log into Facebook and see what Democrats and Republicans say about each other, you get a pretty good idea. Okay, here's where Jesus leans hardest into his great reversal, into the great reversal of what mercy and compassion do. In his parable, he has two people who should be the moral hero, right? Two Jews. He's got a priest and he's got a Levite, but neither of them are. They're both outwardly righteous, but they completely fail to act on their convictions. The hero is actually the Samaritan. Why were these two men who were outwardly righteous so unrighteous in their actions? Scholars have sort of looked through this, made different interpretations. Why didn't they stop? Why didn't they help this man who had been waylaid? Uh, Maybe they were just cowards. They were afraid of being attacked themselves. You know, maybe the robbers were still about. Maybe um, they were late. Okay, after all, they were on this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Maybe they were on their way to the temple. They had incredibly important religious things to do, so they just didn't have time to help this guy. Couldn't be bothered to stop. Or maybe, just maybe, the priest and the Levite were actually trying to be holy. So that Levitical law that I keep talking about, it has a stipulation in there about another set of avoidances And this set referred to the avoiding of uh, the unclean in the form of dead bodies. So maybe they thought that he was dead, and so they needed to give him some distance. And actually, the prescribed distance um, from a corpse is, and I'm not making this up, four cubits or six feet. So we all know how wide that is. Um, So they're trying to be holy, avoiding the corpse. Um, But my own feeling is that they just weren't sure that the wounded travel was worth helping. All kinds of people went on this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Maybe he wasn't their kind, not their neighbor. The irony is that even in the narrowest sense, this man probably was a Jew, it's what a lot of scholarship says it hasn't concluded and so yeah even in that narrowest sense he probably was their neighbor they probably should have stopped to help him but they don't they don't claim responsibility but responsibility is claimed and it's claimed by the last person anyone would have imagined and here's the crowning glory of the parable the wounded man is not rescued by friends but he's rescued by an enemy. I love the textual detail that Luke uh, includes in his account. He says, All three men saw the beaten man lying on the ground, but only the Samaritan saw him. While the first two passers by experienced the wounded traveler's need as an interruption to their very busy and very important day, the Samaritan experienced it as an invitation. He saw him, he stopped, he went to him, and he ministered to him. Why would he do this for his enemy? What causes somebody to do something like this? Compassion. Compassion takes our, enemy, our enemies and converts them into neighbors. Compassion takes our enmity and it converts it into empathy. Compassion compels us to draw close to people we would otherwise avoid, people who would otherwise repel us. Compassion is the holiest law of God's kingdom. It's the power that makes the last first, the least greatest, the hungry satisfied, the lowly exalted. Compassion turns enemies into neighbors. Now we're at the part of the sermon where some of you may be starting to feel, and I usually start to feel at this point, a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> because all your internal mechanisms are telling you like, yeah, I would love to be a more compassionate person all the time. I definitely would like to be that way, but it doesn't really seem realistic with my life and all, you know, you don't really know the people who are in my life who I have to love. Um, and I just don't feel all magically lit with self self-defined, self-defined compassion all the time. And I have to say, like, I am, I'm right there with you. On a daily basis, I fail to have compassion, even for people who live in my own house with me, especially when they're asking you for snacks. <laughs> wow. I just want to urge you to stop thinking about compassion as something that you have to manufacture from within yourself and invite you instead to look to Jesus to look to his example. Just open your eyes, like the Samaritan on the road, open your eyes and just really look to him. I think a lot of us, when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, if we're reading it allegorically, that is, every figure has a one-to-one correspondence with some spiritual reality, we, we look at the, the parable and we see Jesus in the Good Samaritan. You know, just impossibly good and patient and kind And it's not wrong to see him there, and Jesus is all of those things. And it's also not wrong to feel a moral imperative when we read this parable, because Jesus does say those words that we sometimes dread, go and do likewise. But I worry that if we only read the parable that way, we may run the risk of doing exactly what the lawyer did, which is just make rules and then try to follow them, try to follow Jesus' good example so that we can earn God's favor. Let's not do that. Robert Farrar Capon is one of my favorite writers. He was a he was an Episcopal priest, and he said, "If the world could have been saved by providing good examples, to which we could respond with appropriately good works, it would have been saved an hour and twenty minutes after Moses came down from Mount Sinai. But it wasn't saved then." Because we're not saved by having good examples and following good examples. We were only saved when God felt compassion for us and wanted to come near to us. When Jesus turned the entire universe upside down by changing the wine of his Godhead into the water of ordinary humans. When he abandoned his heavenly throne to hang on a criminal's cross. This is why when I, read this, when I read this parable, I see Jesus not just in the Good Samaritan, but also in the wounded traveler. I see him in the man robbed of everything that he had, beaten, stripped, left for dead. I see Jesus in the man made so low that he had to be ministered to, with oil and wine by people who used to be his enemies, I see them, him in the man who was ignored by the religious leaders who were supposed to look for his coming. I see Jesus's choice to take on our weakness and our leastness, our lastness, our lostness, all for the sake of love, and so. When I read the parable of the Good Samaritan, I read it as nothing less than an invitation to join Jesus down there in the pit of his passion. This is an invitation to more than just changing, you know, tweaking your behavior, changing a little something here or there to try and earn God's favor and fulfill the law on your own. You can't do that. What you can do is you can come to Jesus, you can die with him, and you can be raised... By his power. And if we're raised with him, and if we really live through him, really live that eternal life through him, we'll be living inside that abundant, foolish, extravagant love of God. And that's the love that sets us free. Free to stop testing God and justifying ourselves. But just free to receive and then to give compassion to others. Pray with me. Lord, we just invite you to be with us here for the rest of this service. Do you minister to our hearts and draw near to us and show us that you have deep compassion for us? And would the perception of that compassion unlock in us a desire to go to others and serve them? and love them in the way that in the way that you did. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.